Hello and welcome to Army of Crime, the internet's only podcast. I'm here, as always, with uh, my brother Matt. Matt, how's it going today? Pretty solid. Cool, cool. Uh, my name is Dustin. I'm the other host of this show. Um, right now, I'm here in rainy Minneapolis. How's the weather over where you're at, Matt, today? It is hot and humid, so oh, not boy. great for going outside. That does not sound like too much fun, but I guess it's better than snow, am I right? It's it's better than winter, yeah. Yeah. We live in the Midwest where it's like nice for like two weeks or something. It's either too hot or too cold. Speaking of things that are sometimes nice but sometimes aren't. Yeah. What what are we gonna talk about today on this episode, Matt? We have the comic Palestine, which is considered a classic work of comics journalism, and the Star Wars movie Solo, which is perhaps uh, the most eclectic, I feel like I say this a lot, but the most eclectic combination of things that we've come up with yet. It might not be the most, I don't know, but it's... Which one should we do first? Do you want to talk about Palestine? Uh, if I... Yeah, let's talk about Palestine. So... Palestine is this is a graphic novel collection of a nine issue miniseries uh, written and drawn by Joe Sacco, who is sort of a pioneer in this kind of field of comic book uh, journalism. So the comic itself basically stars him and it's just as relating his experiences traveling throughout the occupied territories in Israel and interviewing Palestinian people about their experiences. And, you know, most of it is sort of a, like, wading through the depths of human misery. And it what's, uh, makes it so interesting, I think, part of what is so appealing about this is how, you know, self-aware that Joe Sacco is about, like, kind of what he's doing and, like, poking at the open wounds of this society for like uh, the purpose of drama and for the purpose of art because he like draws himself into the story and he's always kind of like um, trying to probe for ju juicier and more horrifying details. I thought that Palestine was uh, a pretty fantastic comic. I knew, I mean, I definitely learned some things about this uh about like the occupied territories in israel and just kind of the day-to-day -day life there which i didn't really know before because i'm um i mean i know some about this area but not like certainly have any kind of expertise in it so but uh anyway overall what did you think of palestine matt you know i liked it and i thought it was interesting it was a little harder for me to get a grasp on i i wasn't really i don't know what i was expecting because I guess what I thought it was was some kind of nonfiction um, document about the whole area or like the historical background behind it. It's really more of a travel log or like a gonzo journalism thing because he does put himself in there and it's just as much about his journey making the comic as the comic is about Gaza in a way because he is a character in it. He goes around talking to people. And as you pointed out, he kind of makes light of his own callousness and trying to get people to give up their stories. And you do get a lot of stories. There's a lot of people who've been in prison 
um, who have relatives that have been in prison, people who've lost family members. Um, there's people who have been denied medical treatment, people living in poverty. And throughout it, you have him kind of poking his nose into it. And he intentionally tells you that he's like poking his nose into it. So it's kind of a meta, um, it's almost like, a, yeah, gonzo journalism, like that Hunter S. Thompson where you put yourself into the story is kind of what be, it made me think of. But it's also very much a travel log, right? Like a travel journal of of him going to that area. So it doesn't give you a lot of historical background. I think if you didn't know a lot about the topic, you might feel a little lost. And I don't know if it's necessarily his obligation to give you all the historical background because you could certainly look it up on your own. So it was interesting. It threw me for a little while. I had a little bit of a hard time getting a grasp on what it was um, just because I guess I didn't know what, what to expect going into it, if that makes sense. Well, I think what he does is he dispenses with the probably false idea of objective journalistic reporting because this is very much, he's not attempting to give you like some sort of objective historical overview of the history of the region. Instead, it's literally just, you know, a graphic, you know, cartooning depiction of his experiences of traveling around and like talking to people. And I think within that, you get more of the sense of humanity of it. And you get all these kind of like odd details, which I think add a lot of um, color to the story. Yeah, it is definitely a ground, a very grounded story, right? It's by no means like a bird's eye overview of the whole subject. It's it's the story of, you know, one person going around talking to people um, in Palestine. I feel there, like when you opened, you sort of maybe damned it with faint praise a little by saying, oh, it was interesting. Did it not uh, pull at your uh, heartstrings at all? No, it did. I, I guess I just from like a perspective of the format of it, it, it took me a little it threw me for a little bit of a loop because I guess I wasn't expecting it to be such like a travel log. What I thought was interesting, too, is that he signs each page with the date. So it's kind of like you can, you know, like each page is like produced on like a day to day basis of like recreating these specific events that he wrote down. No, um, I didn't want to apply. It doesn't tug at the heartstring heartbreaking story you talk to people person after person um and they live in a lot of these people live in abject poverty they live in essentially refugee camps that have turned into towns and are stuck in this sort of limbo where they're not turning into cities and they're not going other places it's just a refugee camp forever and you get people hanging their laundry up on the barbed wire and the kids growing up um running around around the soldiers it's a terrible situation, and of course, I don't think it's changed measurably since this was made. I think this was in the early '90s that he made this, and it, right, seems... it was during one of the first uprisings. Um, and I think yes. since then, they um, Hamas has been elected um, and carried out a small purge of their opponents in Palestine, and they fought more conflict. There's been more uprisings. But yeah, I don't know if the situation has gotten any better since this was made. I mean, arguably, the situation has probably gotten a little bit worse because since then, there's been an, an increasing number of Israeli settlements in the occupied territories, which have effectively rendered the two-state two solution as an impossibility, is my understanding. Um, but that's right. kind of 
beyond the scope of this uh, book. It's it's interesting too. I mean, it's hard to like really talk about this comic without talking about the sort of horror show of a situation that exists there in real life. Right. You know, because and, and you they're just like you talk about how these people like live in refugee camps and and but that is very much it seems uh by design in the sense that like they're like not allowed to leave and certain people aren't you have to like apply to get like a a permit to like leave and go get a job and the economic resources are intentionally stymied because they don't want Comp basically like Palestinian businesses to compete with Israeli businesses like Palestinian farms and such like that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's 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 pretty. It definitely, like you said, it maybe can take a while to get into because there is not much of like an overall dramatic arc to it. It's more just like him recollecting a series of interviews and incidents and such. But the I think the overall adding up of all these details like adds up to you know horrible picture that's pretty impossible to hand wave away there's an interesting chapter towards the end where he is talking to these two women um who i believe are israeli as i recall and they are and something and then you get to kind of hear they're kind of like rationalizing of of why this situation is like this and like why it's going to continue and they go to like the beach and like Tel Aviv and it's like really nice. And it's just like a huge, you know, it's like a crazy split between like, you have this like European style, like beach resort city. That's like a few hours drive from like the most like squalid property on earth. And I don't know, it's, it's, it was interesting to see because then they're like, well, you're not getting the Israeli perspective. And his goal I think is to give, the perspective that you don't normally get, which is the perspective of the people, you know, in the refugee camps. And in all fairness, too, you do get occasionally you you get the um, Palestinian characters like he doesn't censor their thoughts when they say like openly anti-Semitic things or, you know, will praise like suicide bombing or like missiles being launched at Israel and stuff like that, which I think we would all agree are bad you know like the killing of innocent people is obviously bad but i did appreciate how you know he doesn't really like try to censor their like thoughts to try to turn them into like perfect victims you know he lets that be kind of like messy and complicated yeah it's a very complicated situation in a lot of ways because you have people who they are refugees they're stuck in a permanent refugee status because none of the surrounding predominantly Arab states want to take responsibility for them, uh, which is certainly a common problem in refugee crises. People, states oftentimes don't want to take responsibility for people. So they're stuck in this sort of permanent refugee status. Um, And many of them, you know, some of them don't want to become Israeli citizens because they say that's not their country. They want to be part of a different country or part of their own country. Um, And you have factions within the Palestinians that have different takes on the peace process. It is a complicated situation. It's hard to kind of wrap your head around. So I think ultimately he does take a good approach by just walking through it and talking to people and you get the different sides and you see a lot of it. And of course we should mention the actual art, which is very, very good. Yeah, and one thing that I really appreciated about that is, I mean, I don't read a lot of Otto 
biographical comic books or comic memoirs, but it's that there that's like a very uh, thriving subgenre, especially when you go out of like the nerd dungeons of comic book stores and go into like actual bookstores for normal adults. There's a lot of like graphic memoirs and stuff like that. And sometimes they'll even uh, cunningly uh, package them to look like real books. And I feel like something that he does that kind of marks it away from that is the way that he will use like page layouts or even the location and layouts of like dialogue boxes or like caption boxes to, excuse me, to kind of uh, embrace the subjectivity of the story. You know, like there are like splash pages and stuff and it's not done in like a sort of documentarian style where you have like six panels to a page and each one has like a caption box explaining what's going on, which I feel like is something you sometimes see in these kind of like graphic memoirs, you know, like his, uh, he'll like increase the size of like panels or like the location of caption boxes will like flow to try to like reflect the intensity of the situation, um, which doesn't sound like a lot, but I think for this kind of a, for this kind of a book, it's like there are a lot of like small, interesting, like formal choices like that, that like sort of, do a good job of putting you like into the subjective headspace of the situation. Yeah. He's taking advantage of the medium and not just using it. As you said, some of the more like independent or like comics, memoir, comics, journalism, um, there's a tendency to put a lot of text on a page and keep the illustrations kind of simple. Um, and sometimes there's criticism of that. And yeah, he definitely takes advantage of the medium. And you can tell that he is a very talented artist. He gives you like some full page spreads of parts of the city with a lot of detail of the people walking around. And I think he puts himself in it just enough because he doesn't turn it into a thing about himself. Right. There's no point where he like digresses into his own problems or something. So it, he, he stays focused on Palestine, even as he's using himself as the narrator or as the first person narrator to go through the area. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I know that this is my first time reading a Joe Sacco comic book and he has obviously done many of these. There's even a sequel to Palestine that I haven't read, but, and he's done one. I think he did a couple of comics journalism pieces from um, Yugoslavia in the nineties. So this was my first one that I read, and I kind of understand now why he's considered to be such a big deal. Yeah, I think it's a great thing for someone to read if they're interested in that area. It's not the thing to read if you literally know nothing about it, because he doesn't hold your hand into it, which is fine. Like I said, that's kind of what I thought it was when I was going into it, and that's maybe my own fault. I try and go into things with as little preconception as possible, so I really didn't read up on it. So it's not the thing to read if you're looking for the Palestine like 101 approach. But if it is something that you're interested in or that you want to know more about, you know, then it's definitely worth looking into. I mean, I would just say in general, it's a I thought it was a really good comic book. And if you want to read a really good comic book, you could yeah. do a lot. You could do a lot worse, even though, as you said, yes, it does not give you a lot of the uh, I mean, there is some, but it doesn't spend a lot of time like foregrounding like background historical information. So if you have literally like never heard of the Middle East before, you might be confused. But, you know, by the end, I found it like all like pretty moving. And I thought that the place where it ends is, I mean, it's, it ends on this kind of like obvious 
metaphor, but I thought that it was actually like really effective. Do you recall the ending? Refresh my memory on it. So the ending is him leaving and he's on a bus uh, headed out from Palestine to Egypt and the bus uh, keeps getting lost and the bus driver, there's like several scenes where the bus driver has to like keep getting out and asking for directions. And that's just kind of how it ends, like in the middle of that uh, incident where the bus right. driver is just like asking for directions. So it's obviously this kind of like metaphor of just like being lost and not knowing what the way forward is, which is kind of obvious. But I feel like for this kind of a story, you know, he wisely does not try to like sum it up into some kind of overall point or overall like political goal or something like that. It just kind of like is allowed to end on what feels like a emotionally like a very natural point. So up next, we are going to shift gears from something that is good and well made to something which is not good and is poorly made. And that thing is a motion picture entitled Solo, a Star Wars story. Uh, in 1977, there was a movie that you may have heard of that is called Star Wars. And since that movie came out, it has had four sequels and five prequels. And this is the most recent prequel. So Matt, what did you think of the uh, fifth Star Wars prequel? It's interesting you mentioned the numbering because I actually made a note of that. It's This is the 10th big budget feature length wide release Star Wars movie. So we could almost think of this as like Star Wars 10 and like how insane is that? Like just wrap your wrap your brain around that. Well Star the goofy part is that they've made that five of those have been prequels. Isn't that weird? Like they and all of the prequels I think suffer from varying degree of the same problem of feeling the need to explain uh tiny details and these like really uh, inconsequential lingering plot threads that in fact don't need any explanation. But instead, there's now five movies that explain the backstories of things which didn't need to have their backstory explained. I was just going to say to contrast it with Palestine, uh, Palestine is clearly something that comes from an emotional and like personal place as like Joe Sacco creating a work of art. And Solo comes from a place of Lucasfilm deciding that this is an area in which they could uh, make some money. So they rolled it out. I don't believe there's any while watching this film, which I should say is not like, I don't think like terrible at no point. Do I think it actually presents any kind of like justification for why this movie needed to exist or what the, why there was a story here. Yeah. What I would, I mean, looking back, it's, it's pretty nuts. Cause I remember growing up and as we are related you presumably remember also growing up uh with me and do you remember a time when star wars was a thing that existed in like paperback novels and like pc games and now to think that we have star wars 10 the 10th star wars movie coming out and in some ways that should be an amazing thing right if you were to travel back in time and tell teenage self they'd be like oh that sounds pretty cool and yeah. yet for, from like 1983 till I think 1999, 
Star Wars, like the idea of more Star Wars movies was basically just like a pipe dream. And yeah, like if you were super into Star Wars, you would continue that, you know, love affair by reading novels or comic books or video games or whatever. Yeah, and since then there's been a deluge of new Star Wars films. Um, yeah, because I, I own, I mean, I remember I have a bunch of these paperbacks, like stacks of them. So I'm as into the Star Wars thing as anyone. And I think we talked about this once. Dark Forces 2 Jedi Knight is one of the best PC games of all time. So I'm definitely on board the train, so to speak. But yeah, looking at this, the 10th Star Wars movie, I, they got to bust open the, the mold here. I mean, I want to see, why don't we have lizard cyborg men or bird people with bows and arrows like give us something new i don't know if there's anything in here that feels new or feels fresh after something like rogue one came out it feels even less new because rogue one has a lot of people running around shooting at each other and that was kind of a novelty as a star wars movie that didn't have any of the the skywalkers in it or what have you and now this is another skywalk or star wars movie that doesn't have any of the skywalkers in it and it's a lot of the same kind of material i feel like you got droids and chips and they run around they shoot at each other and I just feel like we need more. If you're going to justify this, you got to have more. It, there's just not enough there. It's it's interesting. I was just thinking this. You mentioned those paperback books. And I feel like one thing that those books had that these that like a movie like Solo doesn't have is that they would always be sequels and they would always be trying to introduce newer and wackier aliens and bad guys and super weapons and such and sometimes of course that would get kind of silly but at least they were like trying to you know give you something that you some kind of like aspect of star wars that you didn't know about before like they did a whole series where there was like this evil alien death cult from another dimension that was like trying to kill everyone in the world or some trying to kill everyone in the galaxy or something and that was at least like an attempt to do something different Whereas Solo is just like, here's Han Solo. Here's how he got his gun. Here's how he got his ship. Here's how he met Chewbacca, blah, 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 blah. Who cares? Yeah, and it's... Are you talking about the New Jedi Order, by the way? They're from another galaxy, not another dimension. Okay. Uh, okay. My, my apologies to the New Jedi Order. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, that's true. And if you look at that, they mentioned some of this material in this movie. I don't know if you caught that. They actually mentioned or they referenced the Lando Calrissian novels. I don't remember if you had ever read the Lando Calrissian novels. They are extremely wacky. They are space whales and um, Lando fights a sorcerer and he meets a droid that's like from another planet or another, um, I think from another galaxy. And there's like pyramids and things. It's a lot of really kind of out there material, and that is the kind of stuff that should be in this movie, right? If you, I would be totally on board if you were to say, let's have a movie with some of that out there kind of content. There's even some of these Han Solo novels where he goes to an area of space in, controlled entirely by corporations, and they have to like break people out of a corporate run prison. I mean, that could even be interesting. There's a lot of material out there. I mean, certainly you could make up your own material and you people probably should, but there's a lot of interesting things and it, it kind of baffles me that they reference some of that in this movie, but then don't really use it to do anything. Like they're going to reference it. So like, oh, hey, nerds, here's a wink, wink, but we're not really going to use any of this material. Do you remember in this movie, and this is like a deep cut here, the 
PlayStation fighting game, Masters of Terrace Kasi. Did you did you catch that? They referenced Terrace Kasi, the martial arts. I did catch that. Yes, which was another. Uh, yeah, which is a very like deep cut for to a Star Wars PlayStation fighting game, which, if I recall, involves an immortal martial artist who like sleeps for a thousand years and then wakes up um, and does something or another. That's the kind of thing that they should put in a movie, like a thousand year old martial artist or something. I mean, just anything like you, you mentioned know? the uh, the nods to other things. And I feel like um, and the nods to other things and this movie sometimes just seems to be constructed entirely out of nods to other things, which is something personally that I really find irritating is this just kind of like blatant, like lazy fan service. And there's a large amount of it in this movie, which element of a fan pandering was your least favorite in solo a star Wars story. Well, there's times where they literally just repeat lines of dialogue. I think there's a line of dialogue that's just repeated straight from Empire Strikes Back. The one, the thing that I thought was extremely dumb was where he is trying to get off planet and he tells them that he has no family or like no family name or something. So then the guy there is just like, oh, well then I'm just going to put Solo. And it's like, not only are we inventing explanations for like dangling plot threads like what a Kessel run is we're like now inventing explanations for things that didn't even have any kind of dangling plot elements to it like how like did we need to know that Han Solo's name was from some kind of like Ellis Island sort of name invention situation like that kind of thing just like really irritates me and it also seems to contradict the only the movie's own internal logic because earlier Han Solo is like talking about him and his dad and stuff that him and his dad would do but then he's like oh I don't have any family presumably like, he does have a family name he just doesn't want to use it yeah but then why not just like make one up why well, have this stupid scene where an imperial officer like gives gives him his name that he's now known for for the rest of history I don't know I don't know you you mentioned this sort of prequel problem or prequel this uh storytelling problem with doing a prequel and it, it does kind of fall into that because the question is how do you tell something new when the audience already knows stuff that happens way far in the future and they just seem to kind of hedge their bets and have it and therefore not have anything interesting happen because you know han solo in a new hope emperor strikes back his whole motivation right is he's trying to get out from under an obligation to a criminal Right. And that's essentially what large portions of this movie are about. So it's like the problem with making a prequel is how do you tell something new? And then they decided, well, we'll just not really tell something new at all. I guess the question would be, would you have Han Solo start out as a cynical guy and then come around at the end? In which case you're basically just repeating his arc from A New Hope. Or would you have him start out as optimistic and become cynical? And again, they just kind of hedge their bets and don't really do any of those and he just doesn't really change really kind of put themselves in a box i think they actually as i recall they kind of do have him start out as like a cynical loner who doesn't care about anyone and then by the end he makes like a conscious decision to help the rebellion right i never really got that he was all that cynical though because he does rescue chewbacca um and you know he generally like wants to help he seems to have a desire to well i think we join would... up with people and be part of the team that's fair, I guess. But you could say 
that even on the most basic level of like the function of a prequel, the the character at the end of this film does not end in the same place as a character of when we first saw him in the first actual Star Wars movie. Like they don't actually, they don't like set up on, on like they spend all this time in showing how he gets his name, his gun, his friend, his ship, his other friend, and probably a bunch of other stuff that I'm forgetting, but they don't actually do the most necessary and obvious thing of showing how he became the cynical loner who refuses to help Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia destroy the Death Star before having a change of heart. Like, he ends the film as the guy who's, like, willing to actually set aside personal motives to help people and do the right thing, which is... So, so like, on... So they, they like spend all this time on setting up unnecessary things, and then on the most basic, obvious point of the prequel, of the idea of doing a Han Solo prequel, they just completely bungle it. Yeah, there's a lot of really head-scratching decisions, and this movie, they got rid of the director partway through and brought in a new director, and I think you kind of end up with a classic case of too many cooks in the kitchen on a sort of studio movie because everything is kind of muddled and anytime some kind of creative decision had to be made, they just sort of split the difference. I mean, let's be real. There's there's one cook in this kitchen and that cook is Kathleen Kennedy, the head of Lucasfilm, because this film was not, was a very obvious cash grab and a lot of films are cash grabs and that's fine but at no point was there did it seem like there was any actual like uh personal kind of filmmaking or interesting filmmaking imprinted on this by a director or by anyone it would really just seem like it came from a place of like oh this could be a star wars thing we could make some money out of and then Yeah. yeah they fired the director and brought in a different director and i'm not sure that you can really tell all that much because I think they reshot most of the film, but either way, it was never going to be a very uh, director-oriented film. It was always going to be like a studio thing. And it suffers from just general, I feel like, problems that studio movies suffer because I felt it was about 30 to 40 minutes too long with the plot that is in there. And in fact, you know, there's a scene in it where Han Solo and Woody Harrelson's character go into Paul Bettany's character's spaceship, which is like his gangster hideout. And like literally the movie should have just started right there. And that's like 30 minutes in. And I don't know why there's this tendency now in movies. They feel like they have to. And I shouldn't just say movies now because I'm sure people have always done it of like walking you through every step of how things happen. Like you could just start it where they walk into this gangster hideout and skip literally everything before that. And I don't think you would lose anything and you would figure it all out in the first two minutes of the dialogue. But even within the movie itself, they spend a lot of time setting up the plot because there's this whole thing of he has to get back to this planet to rescue his girlfriend. And then 30 minutes in, we discard that. And that was at least a motivation, right? Yeah, just a lot of weird creative decisions. Well, I think the thing that you're talking about is just like when I was saying that this was not a director-oriented, a filmmaker-oriented project. It was like a studio originated project and i think with that there's a tendency to want to make sure that absolutely no one from age of you know 9 to 90 could possibly be confused so that's why you have to get this very like uh baby steps introduction where we walk you through absolutely everything to make sure that you know no one gets confused as to what's going on rather than like starting the film in a more interesting 
place. Like it makes me think of in Rogue One. Apparently, Rogue One originally started with the main character like uh, getting arrested and being brought in to like do the mission or whatever. And in the final film, there's like an extra like 30 or 40 minutes before that. That's just like setting up like backstory of these different characters because the film does not trust the audience to like start you know, if it starts like in media rests or something close to that, it, you know, the studios don't trust the audience to be able to like keep up. So instead they have to start from like zero and like slowly walk you up to the plot. Which is sort of ironic because I feel like the first Star Wars movie. Yeah, it doesn't do that. That's what that's part of why the first Star Wars movie, like when you go back and watch it with fresh eyes, why it's so good is because it starts immediately with this conflict between these characters that you know nothing about and then it kind of like barrels from there and you and you just have to like piece it together based on you know the context of what's happening and the dialogue it doesn't you know like if if the star wars was made today it would be 40 minutes longer so that they could tediously walk you through the backstory of darth vader and princess leia and all this other stuff and you know another not to just like relentlessly harp but there's really no antagonist either because ostensibly Paul Bettany's character is the antagonist, but he's in like two or three scenes. They really needed somebody to be in there like chasing them around or something because they go on this uh, heist, right? But like, who are they even fighting? They're fighting like a mining cartel or something. I'm not even sure. Yeah, that's probably a fair point. Um, another thing I would say is that I think the default mode for Star Wars droids in both Rogue One and this has become like, the sort of like rude wacky droid who says like impolite things you know and has like is like well this isn't like a regular droid this is like a cool droid and i just want to say that c-3po is still the best star wars droid and that all these like posers need to take a step back and you know jump into a garbage chute or something because it's just not good did you have any final thoughts on solo a star wars story well, if you're going to see this movie and, you know, I didn't see it until it came out on video, which is weird. Again, if you were to tell teenage me that a Star Wars movie came out and I didn't even bother seeing it in theaters, I wouldn't believe you. If you're going to see it, I thought Donald Glover as Lando, like there's a lot of potential there. He doesn't have a lot to do in this movie, but I was I was on board with that. I guess that would be a reason to see it, see Donald Glover as Lando. He's not in it all that much, but I actually thought that was something I could have seen more of. OK, we'll leave it there then. Mr. Matt, do you have a recommendation for this episode? I'm going to recommend a Star Wars comic that I did read way back in the day, uh, Star Wars Dark Empire, which is a Star Wars comic. It's actually, some people criticize it because some of the plot points seem a little absurd, but I think it actually does an interesting job of giving you similar things to the Star Wars trilogy while also pushing it into some different directions. It's the kind of thing that... I imagine if we had George Lucas made Star Wars sequels for good or ill, it would come out looking like I like it. Some people have some criticisms for it. I, I think it's a good thing. And it's. Um, it kind of pushes the 
the storyline into new directions. It's something that we'll never get now, right? But it was a uh, in that, like you said, in that period where there was all kinds of sequels to Star Wars, but they were all comics or novels. So I would recommend Star Wars: Dark Empire. I think it's a fun comic book. I am going to recommend relating back to the first thing that we talked about, which was the good thing rather than the the second bad thing that we talked about. I'm going to recommend a movie called Death in Gaza, which is an HBO documentary that is, for some reason, does not seem to actually be available on HBO's streaming service, HBO Go and or HBO Now, but it is available on DVD. And it is a film that I think infamously the uh, director and uh, camera operator was shot to death by the Israeli army during the making of the film. Um, and I think that's kind of like the most the reason why it's most well known. But the film itself is actually uh, really well done. And it's just uh, similar kind of to Palestine. It it's follows this guy and this crew uh, just going around and interviewing people and talking about their daily lives living under the military occupation. And yeah, it's a really well done and a really affecting really effective film that I would recommend. Well, that happened to be our episode. So if you would like to find any more information about the things that we talked about or about our recommendations, you can go to our website, www.armyofcrime.com, or you can Find us on social media. Matt is on Twitter at Army of Crime. And I am on Twitter at Dustin44444. Um, you can just come tell me that that's a terrible Twitter handle, and I'm not going to disagree. I can find a small audio clip of Matt saying something wacky to put at the end of the show. Um, should I say something wacky now, or it doesn't count if it's not impromptu? I'll just use that. <laughs>